All right, we are on to week three of our Campfire Stories series. And just as a reminder for those of you who have been here and following along, or if this is your first week out of the last three weeks that you have been here, uh, our Campfire Stories series is about retelling stories from the Bible as if they are stories that we'd be telling around a campfire. So we're not being overly concerned with getting all of the details right or trying to like make arguments about, well, is this historically accurate? We're not, we're not concerning ourselves with all of that. Like a good campfire story, we're trying to tell it in such a way that we're using a little bit of creative license in order to tell a compelling story that people are going to remember and walk away with and hopefully get something out of. Uh, and, and like trying to get your attention to, to make sure that you are seeing things maybe that you didn't see before and that it's hitting a need in the moment that uh, you need it. So th we have done this each of the past two summers as well, and each of those past two summers we did stories from the Old Testament, which is the first half of the Bible. Uh, this summer, however, we have been looking at stories from Jesus, not about Jesus, but stories that Jesus himself told to his followers. These stories are often called parables. Uh, like the other Jeremy was saying earlier, parables are these stories that are told in such a way that try to get at deeper spiritual meaning. So Jesus was, again, using his own creative license to come up with these stories that had like familiar themes or things that people would be familiar with, but would like inject something into them to, to be captivating, to get their attention, to, to give them something to walk away with and hopefully remember and do something with. Uh, another thing to keep in mind as we do this is one of our values here at the Grove, Cottage Grove, is we try to take the way, uh, following the way of Jesus seriously while not taking ourselves too seriously. And so we've tried to, as we've done these stories, also like inject a little bit of extra fun into the retelling of them as well. So today, who's ready to talk about hell <laughs> we got a couple hands up. Uh, Woohoo! Yeah, our favorite topic. Um, my hope is that as as we retell this story, as you walk away with it, it's it's maybe, perhaps, hopefully, a message about hell that's completely different, maybe, than what you have heard about hell before. And I'm actually excited about it because I'm excited about what Jesus was actually trying to say about this topic. Um, so before we jump into that story that Jesus told, again, a couple reminders. I, I already kind of hit them already, but keep these things in mind as we're reading this story that Jesus told. Number one, these stories did not happen. Many of the stories in the Bible did not happen, but especially when it comes to parables, these are not stories that Jesus is retelling because they happened. No one hearing these stories would have tried to like piece together saying, oh, well, this is a story about a, an actual person going through an actual event. Uh, keep that in mind. Uh, a second piece of that that immediately follows is the details that are in here. We're not supposed to take them literally. Um, often Jesus or whoever's telling these types of stories is using a whole lot of creativity to try to get your attention, to get you to remember something and then do something with it. So we shouldn't be reading these stories trying to say, oh, this is actually how things are. Uh, and, and then lastly, again, like we're meant to do something with these stories. We're actually supposed to like find ourselves in these stories so that we can do something with them now. So with all of those things in mind, 
We now get to turn to uh, Luke chapter 16, one of the uh, four biographies about the life of Jesus. And it's time to go to hell, folks. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. Disgusting detail that you're not going to forget, right? The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried in Hades, where he was being tormented, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner, evil things, but now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, between you and us, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so and no one can cross from there to us. He said, Then Father, I beg you to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them so that they will not also come into this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. That's a fun little story, isn't it? So each of the first two weeks that we've done campfire stories, um, Katie rewrote the story in order for whoever's reading it to be able to share it with the kids. We got to this week, and guess who didn't want to write the story? She didn't want to touch this at all, and I can't blame her whatsoever. So this writing the kids' story was actually one of the most difficult parts of preparing for this week. Um, so let's talk about how. Maybe. Kind of. Um, I'm going to rehash some of this. This might sound a little bit familiar to you who were paying attention during our last series when we talked about the book of Jonah. In the ancient world, uh, the, the concept of the world as it is and, and what's beyond this world, the universe was not like we're on a globe and there's the, the, these vast bodies somewhere out uh, in, in the space above us. Uh, in ancient cosmology, all of existence was like a dome, Okay, so we were here on earth. We are this uh, part of this flat earth, this flat existence. This is where us as humans live. And there were pillars from earth that went all the way down into the ground. That's what kind of held us together. But then in the dome above, this is where the heavens were. The heavens were always up above us. This is the realm where God lived. Uh, this is the waters above. Sometimes they referred to it. Uh, and then below that, below earth, right underneath where the pillars went through, was this other realm known as Sheol. So the Jewish, uh, the Hebrew word that gets known for that, that realm. Um, 
If you remember back to our series when we talked about Jonah, Sheol is the place where Jonah jumps off the boat to try to escape God. He goes all the way to the depths of the ocean. He goes below the depths of the ocean, and he's caught up in the underworld of Sheol. Uh, It's like he dies, and he goes there, and only when he reaches out to God from there that that, uh, God sends this fish to to, uh, swallow him and bring him back to life. So Sheol which often gets then translated in English as hell, is the, the underworld, the place where dead, the dead went. And in this ancient Near Eastern cosmology, uh, people did not get separated based on who they were or what they did in their lives. There was heaven, that's where God lived. And then in, in the Jewish understanding of the world, when anyone died, They went down to Sheol. Sheol was not like the hell that we think of it today. Sheol was the place of silence. You got buried and you went into the ground, and that is where you spent the rest of existence. Everybody together in Sheol. Well, a funny thing happened. Um, You see, the, the ancient Jewish people had things happen to them. They had these experiences, and they came to to new understandings of reason and said, I don't know that this understanding works any longer. Maybe we need to rethink the very nature of existence. So a couple things happened. First of all, there was this chaotic um, transforming event called the exile, where the the people of Israel were forcibly removed from their land. They, They had their culture wiped out. Everything was up in the air. There was no, like, certainty about who they were or what they were meant to do. Many of them were killed very viciously, and this was done by pagan empires. So that was kind of a big deal. And then after that, they eventually, the, that pagan empire was defeated by another pagan empire, and they were allowed to return home. But even when they returned home, it was like they, they didn't get everything back. They didn't have this sense of identity back. And still, um, there was this uncertainty. Still, people were, were dying. Still, the unrighteous pagans were ruling over them. And so given all of that that they were living through, it was like they, they came to this conclusion of, this can't be all that there is. This cannot be all that there is. For, for those of us who have remained faithful, we just die and then we go into silence. This can't be all that there is for us. This can't be all that there is either for those pagans who are doing wrong things. We all end up in the same place, in, the, in that sheol, in that place of silence. And so the more that they thought about it, the, the more that they uh, interacted with the thinking of other people in, in the place where they were at that time, the more it went from a, this can't be all that there is, to this is not all that there is. And uh, as, as the languages changed, uh, you see it moves from Sheol, which is a Hebrew word, to Hades. Maybe you're familiar with Hades and like Greek mythology. Hades was this underworld, but maybe Hades, where everybody went after they died, maybe it was like separated into different places uh, where the normal people, they, they went to Hades too, but there was a separate part where God's faithful people also went And rather than simply being a place of silence where God's faithful people went after death, maybe those faithful people went to Hades, but they went to this different part where they got to be with 
everybody who went before them, the other faithful people, they got enveloped, they got comforted by all of the faithful people that went before them, like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, these people who were a part of their religious history. And they were, this was a place not of silence, but of comfort after death, like a child who is returning to their parents and being wrapped up. So after death, this is not like the fiery hell. This is Hades where everybody goes, but there is a lasting comfort for those who have remained faithful. So with all of that in mind, let's go back to the story that that Jesus told. So as Jesus often does, he has uh, two different characters in this story, and he has two different characters in order to make sure that he's drawing a distinction and a contrast between them. On the one hand, there is a rich man, The rich man has absolutely everything going for him. He's got the best house. He has the best food. He has the best clothes. He's got everything going for him. He is living the definition of comfort. But then on the other end of the spectrum, there is the poor man who's named Lazarus. Lazarus has nothing going for him. He has no home. He's living outside the gates of the rich man. He has no food. If he could just get the droppings from the table of the rich man, he'd be super happy. He's so sick, he's so unhealthy that dogs are coming up and licking him. Again, disgusting detail, but it's one that you're going to remember, right? And yet what happens is both of them die, both the rich man and uh, the poor man whose name Lazarus die. And people often say that death is the great equalizer. You've probably heard that before. That's not the case in this story. Death is the great reversal in this story. Because as the rich man dies, the rich man goes to Hades, goes to the underworld, and the rich man who has lived in comfort his entire life is a little bit uncomfortable. He is in torment, we're told. But then there is Lazarus, the poor man, who has lived his entire life in torment, nothing going for him. At his death, the roles are reversed, and now he is being comforted. Now here's the question. They're both in this Hades. They're having extremely different experiences. What is the thing that is tormenting the rich man? Is it like this pointy-eared red devil with a pitchfork? There's no red devil with a pitchfork in this story. Uh, is, it, is it the fire and flames of hell that we often think of? Uh, there's like flames mentioned, but it says that the, the rich man is in torment in the flames. That he, It's not necessarily the flames that are causing him torment. What I think the torment, what is driving the, uh, the rich man to this, this place of agony is that he has lived an entire life of being served and suddenly he's in this spot where he is uncomfortable. You can see this in his response even as he sees what's going on with, uh, with Abraham and Lazarus. What does he say? Abraham, I'm uncomfortable. Can you send Lazarus to give me some water to make me a little bit more comfortable? 
To which Abraham says, dude, are you serious? Do you not understand what's going on here? This is not about your comfort. He is being comforted because he lived his entire life uncomfortable. It is not that he is meant to continue to serve you even in this afterlife. And it's almost like the rich man then gets it. He then realizes, oh, I have other people. I have family who are still in the realm of the living. Maybe we should go and warn them that they need to change their ways. He's this close to getting it. And yet he proves again he doesn't get it. Hey, Abraham, okay, I understand. Can you send Lazarus to do this job for me? Again, to serve me and my family to make sure they get it right now. To which, again, Abraham says, Dude, are you serious? You still don't get it. This is not about comfort. This is not about your comfort and being served. You had everything that you needed to get this right in life. Your family has everything to get this right in life, and you chose a different way. And that different way has implications. As we look at this story, I think it's pretty clear that Jesus is not trying to tell us literally about what the afterlife is looking like for those who were righteous and unrighteous, those who were comfortable in life, and those were, who were just meant to serve in life. It, it, it's not that he's trying to draw like literal details out and say, when you die, this is what it's, it's like. And in fact, when we look at the life and teachings of Jesus throughout the, the biographies about his life, he pays very little attention to trying to say, oh, this is what you ought to expect in the life to come. Even when he talks about heaven and hell, he's very concerned with what that means for people now. So when he uses these words like Hades that get translated into hell, hell is this existence where our hatred and exploitation and greed all of a sudden it adds up and has consequences. That's what hell is like. And when he talks about heaven or the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, he is talking about things being made right, where God gets what God wants, where everyone is loved and accepted and has enough for them. Even the rich man in, the, in this story, you can see him like, making those connections. He's this close. He does not, he's not like, oh, I gotta, I gotta get this figured out for myself and make sure that my, uh, make sure that my family doesn't go to hell. He sent, he tries to send Lazarus so that they can begin living right in that moment in life because he realizes that the way that you live now, the way that you can serve now rather than simply worrying about being served has implications. So I'm going to do something that I often try to avoid at all costs. Um, I often try to avoid using big, fancy theological words that are just as difficult to say as they are to understand. And I often try to avoid labeling myself with something. Because I don't want to like pin myself down. I like the wine more than the label. Anybody get that reference? But here, here I'm going to do that. 
And this is something that I've been thinking about for a long time, especially having grown up in a, in a tradition that talked a lot about hell and brimstone, okay? Two words that I have learned to embrace over the last, I'm getting old, probably 20 years now. Ready? Eschatological agnostic. Eschatological agnostic. Eschatological is this fancy word that means like the end times or death or what happens after death. Agnostic, that might be a more familiar word to you. Agnostic is someone who doesn't know and says maybe we can't know or maybe we shouldn't know. Maybe we shouldn't concern ourselves with that knowing. Um, again, over the last 20 years, I would say that I would start to label myself as an eschatological agnostic. I do not know what happens after death. I do not know exactly what it's going to look like. I certainly don't know who's going to be here and who's going to be there. I don't think that is my job to have that all figured out. Honestly, given some of the things that Jesus says, I don't think that it's any of our business to try to figure out all of those details. Because we are those who claim to be followers of Jesus. And as those who try to follow the way of Jesus, Jesus again seemed much more concerned with trying to prepare people to live lives rightly now that are going to have impact, that are not just about comfort but about serving than about preparing people for some future existence in some other realm, right? And so my hope, my, my prayer for us is that we can be the type of people who don't just try to live comfortable lives, but we try to lean in and say, how can we live lives of love and service for one another? How can we cultivate the common good in such a way that we grow goodness in and through our everyday lives that has lasting, maybe even eternal impact. May that be so.